Up there swinging. He's had two out of three, a single and a double, and Billy Cox is playing him right on the third base line. One out, last of the night. Back of pitches. Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting at 2.92. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads it 4 to 2. Hard time down the line at third, not taking any chances. Lockton without too big of a lead at second, but he'll be running like the wind if Thompson hits one. Bracker throws. There's a long strike. I can't be, I believe. The Giants won the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the very back of the left field stand. The Giants won the pennant, and they're going crazy. They're going crazy. In September of 1957, baseball's Dodgers, who called Brooklyn home since 1884 and Ebbets Field since 1913, played their final games in Flatbush. They'd been world champions just two years earlier. It's close, and umpire Summers calls him safe on the daring maneuver, but Yogi Berra doesn't think so. Simultaneously over in northern Manhattan, the New York Giants, champions in 1954, and at home near Coogan's Bluff since 1883, play their final games overlooking the Harlem River. Both teams would move 3,000 miles away to California. The Dodgers would settle in Los Angeles, first at Memorial Coliseum, and then in the famed Dodger Stadium, winning the 1959 World Series, and five more in the years since. The Giants moved to San Francisco, played their home games at the mercilessly windy Candlestick Park, before moving to a new stadium in 2000, winning three world titles in the 21st century. New York would be left without a National League team to rival the Crosstown Yankees for five years, until the New York Metropolitans, colloquially known as the Mets, were formed. They're winners of two world championships of their own. In 1960, Hall of Fame pitcher Bob Feller, hosting a syndicated radio show, spoke about the last Giants baseball weekend at the Polo Grounds. It was the final game of the 1957 season, but in a way, it was the end of an era. Many months before, New York baseball fans were shocked by the news that their beloved Giants and their arch-rival Brooklyn Dodgers were moving to greener pastures on the West Coast. Only 11,606 diehards turned out for the Giants' farewell at the Polo Grounds and somehow their feelings were summed up in a sign in the left field bleachers. It read, stay team, stay. But the team didn't stay. In the final game in the polo grounds, the Giants bowed to the Pittsburgh Pirates nine to one. But the real action came after the final out. The fans swarmed onto the field, dug up home plate and carted away. Others took big chunks out of the outfield and still others sought off grandstand seats to take home as souvenirs. If Giants owner Horace Stoneham had made an appearance, they would have hauled him away too. Some chased the players across the field and into the clubhouse. Others waited nearby and hollered for one last look at Willie Mays. Mays admitted that he was so nervous when he came to bat in the ninth inning that his hands were shaking. Willie said, 
never happened to me before, not even in the World Series or in the All-Star Games. One of the Giants' all-time pitching greats, Carl Hubble, summed it up most eloquently when he said, It doesn't matter where we go, this place, this stadium, will always be home to me. There's an old adage that says, change is life's only constant. Post-war hope turned into a labor strife and a baby boom, which gave rise to the most profitable year in radio history, 1948, leading directly to the TV era. The New Deal was more than 10 years old, and an urban diaspora, guided by white flight and atomic fear, brought families to newly blossomed suburban communities and left cities wondering what the future held. More uncertainty lay ahead. Four days into October, the USSR would launch Sputnik 1, the first artificial Earth-orbiting satellite. Everybody's lives got a little nearer, and yet a little further apart. But if they wanted to feel close, all they had to do was tune on a radio to a CBS affiliate Sunday afternoons as George Walsh breathed, and now, to open for suspense. They perhaps remember a time when Jack Benny drove radio ratings while his cast drove him crazy. To a time when Tuesday nights meant NBC with Fibber and Molly, Bob Hope, and Red Skelton. When Thursdays meant Crosby or Suspense or Burns and Allen and to a time when Norman Corwin helped remember what brought us home. Now, may I rise to thank the master painter of the year? Well, who's that? October. No louvre in the world is big enough to hold his landscapes. He is exhibited in every tinctured leaf and hung in every meadow. Have you seen his skyscapes? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, indeed. They say he mixes pigments out of elemental stuffs and ranges far afield. Did you know his greens come from a special patch of the Aegean? His reds from Yuma in the eyes of Bengal tigers and the powdered beaks of tropical toucans? His oranges are skimmed, they say, from surfaces of rising moons. Well, where do his tints of hazel come from? Well, hazelnuts. His plum colors? From plums. His fawn from fawns? Precisely. Is he not a marvel then, October? Yes, he is. Not worth a canticle? It's where we're all going anyway. More specifically, it's where we're heading to next month.